HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is Capri Cafaro, host of Eat Your Heartland Out. Our next episode features two guests who are creating new culinary experiences in their respective Midwest communities and beyond. Meet Nikki thompson Fraser, who founded Sweet Temptation Bakery in Lansing, Michigan. And get to know Aaron Carlman Weber, the founder, owner, and operator of Chicago's All Together Now. Nikki, thanks so much for joining each Currently a Doubt. Thanks so much for having me. You have such a cool story, and what you do is, I think, so needed. So um, tell me and, and our listeners uh, about Sweet Encounter Bakery and how you got it started. Yes. So Sweet Encounter Bakery, we specialize in the best gluten-free eats, treats, and cooking classes for all ages. I started because both of my girls had food allergies, and I wanted to ensure they can have the same amazing treats without compromising taste, texture, and flavor. And I feel like we've nailed that. Well, and you just nailed that description too. So I feel like you've done this once or twice. How long, <laughs> how long has Sweet Encounter been around as a business? So Sweet Encounter started out of my home in 2015. We opened our physical storefront in 2022. So it's been two years in our physical storefront. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was the process like to, you know, find the, uh, recipes that work to kind of meet all that v criteria that, you know, certainly people want, you know, that may have um, food intolerances um, or may, you know, you know, choose to just be gluten free, free or whatever the situation may be that had to be a lot of trial and error to get you and your the products where you want them. Definitely a lot of trial and error to get the products where I wanted them to be. And really what it took was a lot of patience and perseverance. And I think that sometimes people see the end result and don't realize the process. So I always talk to people, anything <laughs> when you're dreaming. Yes, exactly. Right. When you're, when you're working hard on something, it's a process and it takes perseverance yep. and it takes that, that consistency and dedication. And so I tried 
I mean, I would even venture to say thousands of different recipes, ways of doing things, mixing things together. I try it and I'm like, mm, it's not quite the way I want it. I change the temperature. I change the setting on how I did things. I mix up a different way. I would do different ingredients. Sometimes I do the same ingredients, but I change the baking temperature or it was just a lot of different things that I did until I figured out what worked. And then once I figured out what worked, I started duplicating it. Right. Sure. And, and how hard was that to get to scale? You know, if one thing to do it in your kitchen, it's another thing to then, you know, get that to work time and time again. Yes, that that was a process. And really it was about making sure that we weighed everything that I literally, as I did things, I took notes to make sure that I didn't forget. Cause a lot of times we do things like it's muscle memory, right? So we're used to right. doing it and we don't even think about some of the fine nuances or small things that we do. So I tried to make sure every time I was doing it as we were growing that I would video myself or either I would write notes as I went along step by step, just so I could capture every little thing and then go back and write it all up so someone else can do it. That's really smart. I, you know, I, I I think a lot of us do experiment in the kitchen, and then we go back and be like, "What did we do? What did I do? How did this work? How did how did I nail it?" Uh, you know, and if if you know, videoing yourself, uh, recording it, you know, making sure uh, really is a is a fantastic idea uh, because you don't have to stop and and, and write and, you know, make sure you have something to write on and it's yes. a, you know, your kitchen could be a big mess. So that, that is such a good tip. Anybody that's listening that might be out there playing around, you know, doing, you know, um, something in, just for yourself or, or even maybe doing, you know, a cottage baking type of thing. That is such a good tip. So I'm going to note that one to myself as well. Uh, did you ever want to just throw in the towel and be like, oh my gosh, like, you know, this is, after the thousandth time I've tried this, I can't, you know, it's impossible to make something that's gluten-free with the best texture or the best taste. I have wanted to throw in the towel several times and not just with the baking. Cause that's definitely was difficult. And there were times where I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, why can't I make this taste like grandma's for example, but also just the business process, because as a mm -hmm. business owner, there's a whole nother aspect to yep. the business outside of the technical aspect. Right. So right. understanding your customers, your market advertising, finances. So there have been times where I have literally wanted to throw in the towel, like, okay, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. I don't know if this is too much for me. And I just say that those are the times when you really have to push through because I always say that there is, you know, that, that light comes right when it's darkest most, right? So just like, you know, the dawn before, uh, the dawn comes right after the darkest moment of night. And that's the same thing in life. So it's like, just hold on. Cause you're almost, almost there. Don't give up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that. Good for you for for sticking it out, and and I mean what you've done is is really incredible. And you're right. I mean I think that you know so many times people get excited, and you know they say, oh, you know I people get you know they compliment their cookies or their cakes or their cupcakes or whatever it might be, right? Um, mm -hmm. Even soaps, you know, whatever. And they said, well, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, I can sell these. And then they go to a farmer's market and, you know, it's sort of like this, this progression. And, you know, the more that you get into it, so you, you end up getting a little bit of success. And then all of a sudden there's that turning point. What was that process for you going from, you know, making the cookies, doing, you know, testing those recipes, um, and then developing the menus and, and really kind of 
growing the concept all the way from your kitchen, your home kitchen to now, you know, having a physical space and doing classes, which I want to talk to you about next too. Yes, it was definitely a journey going from my home into the physical space. It really was just being consistent in my craft and listening to my customers. What do they want? What do they like most? And not always listening to them with an ear, but listening to what the sales are telling me, like what's selling, what's not selling, um, mm-hmm. and listening to people's nonverbals. Cause I'll do tests, you know, with samples and let them test things. And sometimes people aren't always open to telling you their true feedback, which is okay. But I got really good at reading people. Like I could really tell if someone's like, Oh, that tastes good. But they really didn't think it tastes good. And people who are like, oh, this is delicious. And they really believed it. So I looked at all of those different things to really be able to figure out what are my best sellers and then focus on those things because you can't do all the things. And once I moved into the store, I really had to prune my menu. And there were things that I really liked, but I knew they didn't sell as much as other things. So you really, again, have to go back to what is going to sell, what do your customers want, and making sure that you focus on those things, but also focusing on things that have a good return on investment, a good profit margin. So all of those things are so important in business. It's not just, oh, this is a great cookie, but okay, this is a great cookie. How do I find the right products to make it so that it's cost effective? And then what's the great price point? And then how do I get it out to my customers and get them to purchase it? So mm-hmm. it was definitely an evolution from my home kitchen to being in that commercial space and teaching other people to make my recipes. That was also a challenge. I I can imagine. And I want to turn to that conversation in a second, but what you just said made me think of another question, which is how do you actually, you know, identify and source those ingredients? Because you can't just go to a, a, you know, a wholesale distributor, you know, or Amazon or whomever to get these ingredients because, you know, you have, you are dealing with, um, you know, uh, dietary restrictions like gluten-free. So making sure that, you know, or even vegan or sugar-free, whatever it might be. So, you know, I'm sure that in that process, identifying that sweet spot, no pun intended, of, (laughs) you know, a cost-effective ingredient and the ingredient that works to meet all of that criteria of taste and texture and, and the rest of it had to be a real tricky process. Sourcing has been a thorn in my side <laughs> because of exactly what you said. Really being able to find products in bulk that are gluten free or that are allergy friendly, some of them just don't exist in bulk. I've called some places mm-hmm. and said, Hey, can I purchase this in bulk? They're like, or wholesale. They're like, Well, we don't do that because they don't really have a structure in place because there's not. A lot. It's growing, but there's not a lot of businesses that are completely gluten free or completely allergy friendly and operate at a large scale. So with that being said, the market hasn't caught up with the demand. And so I have found that I've had to kind of try to piecemeal things together. Sometimes I'm buying things at retail price, which sucks, but some things I do. And then there have been times where I haven't been able to go directly to the source. Um, Some of my flowers and things like that, I've been able to get directly from the source and be able to get them at a wholesale rate, but it's literally just calling people and then convincing some companies that Hey, if you're selling it to a retailer like Meyer or something like that, them yep. in, a, in a large amount, 
I'm buying also in a large amount on a weekly basis. You can sell to me. So really getting people to think differently because sometimes we get so stuck in what is normal or what we're used to that we don't always think outside the box. So sometimes it's really encouraging people to think outside the box. So I always ask the questions because you never know what the answer will be. Yeah. Now I, I'm just curious, you know, you're, you're in Michigan um, and you mentioned Myers, which I know is, is also Michigan based. We have them in Ohio too, but do, do you find, I mean, have you found any suppliers that are actually in, you know, based in Michigan or based in the Midwest? Yes. So we get our sugar pioneer sugar from, mm-hmm. yeah, yes. So there's a few places that we do use, which is great. Um, and pioneer sugar is vegan because there are some sugars you may or may not know this that are not actually vegan the way that they are processed. Huh. Um, vegans will be like, no, cause some of the way they're processed, uh, they're processed with, uh, they chart, they use charred animal bones to whiten the sugar. Some, some processes do that. I've learned something new. (laughs) I had no idea. I learned something new too, to be honest with you, when I was doing the research and making sure that my things were in line with different dietary constraints. So um, that was an interesting one for me. Well, I definitely have learned something new for all our vegan listeners. I am so curious uh, if if you if you even if if uh, our vegan listeners have known about something like that. But I know that it does take a lot of due diligence to to really be adherent to to vegan. And I know that your menu offers you know a number of vegan options or things that can be made vegan. So so tell me a little bit about your menu, and then we're going to talk about teaching your recipe. So first your menu, give us, um, you know, a taste, you know, wish we could actually have a taste of, uh, the kind of things that are, that are on your menu. So we have everything from peach cobbler cupcakes to peach cobbler pie, actually, to red velvet cupcakes, sweet potato pies. We have German chocolate cake. We have apple pie bars. We just have a variety, of course, cookies, brownies. Our brownies are so chocolatey and fudgy and delicious. so hungry. (laughs) I know, right? But then we also have savory. So when you come into our bakery, you can get soup. You can get mac and cheese that's gluten-free. Oh, wow. You can get, yes, you can get a quiche for breakfast or you can get a breakfast sandwich. And I see a, a vegan chickpea chicken, quote unquote, salad sandwich. Yes, like that's see on right. Here. Yes. And it's really good. So it's a chick made with chickpeas, garbanzo beans, and it's so good. And it does remind you, I love chicken salad. We have a chicken salad sandwich on our recipe, on our menu too, but we also have the chickpea and it's actually pretty comparable. I think I like both of them. But we want to have something for everyone. Well, for most people, because we can't we can't cater to everyone. It's just impossible. But we do our best to be as inclusive as we can. People don't always realize the importance of having an inclusive dining experience. And mm-hmm. our menu provides that for people because food is such an integral part of everything we do. Absolutely. And when you are serving people, when they come to the table to enjoy a meal with others, they want to be able to eat similar things as well. Like a vegan's not like, oh yeah, I guess I'll just take some fruit for dessert. No, they want a brownie too. You got a brownie, they want a brownie. Or like my daughters who are gluten-free, they have food allergies. They want to be able to eat a brownie too. They want the brownie to taste good and not taste like dust and crumbs and, and whatever else. You know, they want it to taste good. So, we really 
try to emphasize to people the importance of inclusive dining and making sure that it's safe and that more people can have a seat at the table. Well, and, you know, you go one step further by, again, bringing these skills to the masses or to the public, at least, by offering classes which are not just about, you know, cookies and pies, but a a whole range of other things. So how do you decide, you know, what you're going to what you're going to offer as far as these classes are concerned? Again, for offering our classes, kind of like with our menu, we talk to our customers and we find out things that they're interested in and things that they like. And things also, too, that are easy to replicate at home, um, Mm -hmm. that are nice, hearty family dinners, that are things that is going to bring a smile to your face and to the friends and family members who come and sit at your table. So we really want to make sure that they can bring that sense of home and goodness into their home after they've had a a cooking class with us. So we do Tokyo street food, um, which is fun because a lot of times Asian foods, um, if it's traditionally prepared, does not always avoid gluten. So we have some interesting takes on what we do. So for instance, there's a yakisoba noodles and it's actually soba noodle that you can buy, but we use, gluten-free spaghetti noodles. So there's different ways that you can make it and still make it taste delicious and everyone loves it without compromising, again, that taste, texture, and flavor. So we do pasta-making classes, which people love. When we I do noticed those, that. Mm-hmm, they sell out. We do ravioli. We do traditional pasta. But they're so much fun. And it just lets people know that you can make these things. It's not as intimidating as you think. And you can make them for your family and you can really have a yummy time in the kitchen. Uh, well, I, I want to sign me up. I mean, I'm, I'm going to start. I always, every single time I talk to somebody, I get so excited. I'm like, I'm getting on the road and I'm driving to you guys tomorrow because <laughs> it just sounds like <laughs> so much fun. But, you know, and I, you know, I, I have um, one friend of mine and I, uh, we always like a couple times a year we'll go, there's a two, there's like a cooking school and we always try to pick something that's kind of seasonal to do. Um, but, you know, a lot of times there's, you know, obviously there's a number of different types of cooking classes that happen. And in those circumstances, I would imagine that if you have a peanut allergy or, you know, you're gluten-free, it would have to, you would have to ask in advance, like, Hey, um, I'm going to come for this cooking class that maybe it is, you know, gluten-free cooking class, but has, you know, have the ingredients been segregated? You know, how is the kitchen maintained to make sure that there's not that cross-contamination? How do you handle that aspect with folks coming in for cooking classes and making sure that, um, you know, your facility is, um, you know, free of anything that might be a concern. So we are very open and welcoming to people, you know, clearly that have different types of dietary constraints or food allergies. And we let people know. So people will email us and say, hey, is this class going to have this in it? Like when our pasta making class, we it's very easy for us to do two different sauces. So there's been times where we've had people who are like, I can't have dairy. Well, thankfully, our actual pasta recipe that we have does not include dairy at all. And so when we do sauces for that class, we'll do a dairy-free sauce and we'll do a regular sauce. We always ask too, is it okay for dairy to be present? Because 
we will have dairy present in the facility because for some people that's not okay. For other people, it is okay. So we just make sure we ask those clarifying questions, understanding what people's needs are. And we are a completely peanut-free facility. So people Mm -hmm. love that because it's very hard to find bakeries that are peanut-free. Trust me, I love peanut butter. But peanut butter does not love my kids, unfortunately. And many others. And many other people's kids as well, um, and adults. So I have to be mindful of that. And so we just make sure that when we're sourcing, again, we're sourcing products that don't have those in there. And we're just double checking, triple checking ingredients and making sure, especially if we go with a new source, that we ask those questions to make sure that they know that we are allergy friendly and that we can't have any type of um, gluten or peanuts in our facility. So... So, you know, you've, you've managed to think of, I feel like absolutely everything when it comes to the the food that you make and uh, the, you know, the recipes that you share in your cooking classes, but you're not necessarily like a a classically trained, you know, baker or, you know, have a specific culinary background, right? I do not have a culinary background. So I worked in corporate communications and I also was an executor for a nonprofit, but food has always been my love language. So mm-hmm. my friends jokingly called me Oprah Stewart because I literally watched <laughs> Oprah, seriously, every day I love it. Um, after school at 4 p.m. Oh, I know it. You, you and I must be around the same age. I, that is I, a core memory right there. Yes, absolutely. And so I was the friend in high school and college that would be like, you teach people how to treat you and, you know, don't do this or you should do this. And then also I was the one that cooked and baked all the time. And (laughs) so, yes, I had a hot plate in my dorm (laughs) And so back in the day, at least in our, I went to Indiana University for whatever reason, they did not serve dinners on Sunday. So we were kind of off to our own devices. And I literally would be the one making Sunday dinner for all of my friends in the dorm room. So love it. With those memories and things, food has just always been an integral part of the way that I show love. And so when my kids were diagnosed with food allergies, about a year or so into that, as I was experimenting, trying to figure out how to feed them, my husband took a job at Michigan State. So we moved to Michigan um, from Alabama, although I'm originally from Indiana and he's from Ohio, but we moved back up to the Midwest. But it was at that interesting time in my life where it's like, hmm, what do I do with my life? And it's like, hmm, my kids have these food allergies, maybe I can make something of it because I do love food. I do love sharing the love of food with other people. Um, And the fact that I could be able to do this and support my kids in the process was amazing. So it was really kind of that perfect storm that came together. But no, I do not have a traditional culinary background. Well, it just shows that, you know, if if you do enough research and put your mind to it and don't give up, you know, you, you know, the sky is the limit because you, you really have have taken this on by storm. But I can imagine that your, you know, your background in corporate communications, uh, you know, and the skills coming, uh, you know, as an executive director of a nonprofit, which always means you got to do more with less, you know, you got to be able to, you know, communicate Mm -hmm. with community, you know, you're going to have to, you know, with marketing, you have to, you know, identify what, you know, the connects with the public. So I, I can imagine you're, you know, drawing upon all of those different skills, um, you know, and it sounds like they've all really served you well in, in this, uh, in this endeavor over the last, you know, almost decade. Can you believe it? I, it's like, that's, uh, you know, even though you've been in a, in a, you know, storefront for just, you know, two years, you know, you've been at this since 2015, that is just incredible. Um, 
I, I, I want to just switch gears real quick and ask you, because I am curious for myself about your, so selfishly I'm asking you this, about cupcakes in a jar and what that's all about. I also see they ship. We have been doing cupcakes in a jar for nearly a decade. So since we started, I used to do pitch competitions and I would bring all the judges cupcakes in a jar because they carried well. I didn't have to worry about the frosting getting messed up, anything like that. And they could also take the item with them if they didn't want to eat it all right there during the competition. So I've been doing this for nearly 10 years in terms of cupcakes in a jar. However, we just decided to kind of monetize or commercialize it just actually in the last six months. So specifically November is when we launched our e-commerce. Yes. So we had them in the store and we've been kind of doing them here and there, but Last year, we started thinking strategically about how can we actually grow our e-commerce and really, you know, grow our business, grow our reach and not just make this a Michigan thing or a Midwest thing, but how can we be, you know, all across the U.S.? And we thought about going into wholesale and doing grocery stores and things like that, but we wanted to have a little bit more control over the quality of our products. And so the cupcakes in a jar was like, hey, we know how to do this. We know how to do this well. They ship well. Let's you know, research this and really create a system around it. So we purchased boxes. Our boxes arrived in November. We sent them to about 100 friends and family as a tester uh, right before Thanksgiving to get their feedback, to make sure that the packaging was okay, everything arrived okay, just testing our systems. And then, lo and behold, the day before Christmas, we get a big boost from Oscar nominee Danielle Brooks, who plays Sophia on The Color Purple, because uh, we were sending them out because we created this Color Purple no cupcake kidding. in a jar and a Color Purple released on Christmas, as you know. And so we were sending them to everyone related to The Color Purple. And Danielle Brooks tried them. And she did a video on her social media on IG. And it was a it was a story, I should say. And it also went viral. So it got us a good, a good little boost right before Christmas. So then we got a boost from Tabitha Brown, and she is a vegan social media influencer, author, actress, Mm -hmm. all of that. And she tried our vegan purple velvet cupcakes in a jar, and we went viral. So they're such a cool treat. They make a great gift for friends and family or for business clients and things like that. We ship them anywhere. They come in these really cute boxes. You open it up. It tells the story of how Sweet Encounter got started. And it's just brings joy to people. Seriously, people are so excited to get their purple box and we get all these reviews and videos of people unboxing and how excited they are, how excited their friend was to get the box. And so it's like, you, yeah, you get this little box of treats and you're so excited and you can't wait to open it. And then it's good. So that makes it all the more better. Absolutely. and, And do you ship nationwide? We ship nationwide and we have been shipping like hundreds a week since the big Tabitha boom. And we're excited. We're just waiting for, you know, uh, more great endorsements to come along and we you know for more people to realize, you know, what we do because all of, although we are allergy friendly, 
Uh, Danielle Brooks has no food allergies, and she said our red velvet cupcakes in a jar were bussin'. She sang that. I can't sing, so sorry about that for everybody who's like, <laughs> oh, God, the voice. But she sang it, so that's how good it was. Like, if someone sings something, you know it's good. And so it's just a testament that at least – um, actually more than 50% of our customer base right now are people who do not have food allergies. They love our products. They love our mission. They love what we do and they just support us. And so that's warming to us because that knows we're doing something right. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're uh, absolutely right that, you know, if, and it shows that all of your hard work has paid off because people that don't quote unquote have to, you know, uh, eat things that are allergy friendly are choosing to do so because of the taste and, and again, to support the mission. I mean, I'm looking at the stuff online and, you know, those cupcakes at a jar are calling to me for sure. And I don't have any of those dietary restrictions. Um, so I, I would definitely want to try them for, <laughs> uh, at some point now that I know that, that they, that they can come to me in Ohio and I don't necessarily have to, uh, hop in the car and go to Lansing, Michigan. But, um, is there anything else that you want, uh, you know, our audience to know about, about your mission and your plans for Sweet Encounters? Well, just to say that we want to continue to grow and grow our e-commerce. So we just invite you to have a Sweet Encounter. When people come into our store, we always say, hi, how can we sweeten your day? And when they leave, we say, thank you for letting us sweeten your day. Because we realize that we have the privilege of serving them, that they could go anywhere in the world, right? Or anywhere in the city or the state and get the items that they want. But they chose to come to Sweet Encounters. So we want to let them know that we appreciate them for letting us sweeten their day. And so I think that's the message I want people to go away with when they think about our brand and think about who we are, is that we're all about sweetening people's day and thanking them for allowing us to do so. And more importantly, that anybody now can enjoy a sweet encounter because we ship nationwide. I love it. And if somebody wants to find you to order those cupcakes in a jar, where can they, where can they find you? Yes. So our website is sweetencounterbakery.com. It's really easy and you'll see the button that says cupcakes in a jar and you can go right on and order. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nikki. This has been so fun, so inspiring, uh, and uh, it's definitely making me hungry. So we really appreciate you sharing your story with, with me and with our audience. Yes. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is Eat Your Heartland Out with me, Capri Cafaro. After the break, I'll welcome Aaron Carlman Weber, who is the founder, owner, and operator of All Together Now in Chicago's Ukrainian Village. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese... The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. 
Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Aaron, thanks for joining the show and telling us all about your work as the founder, owner, and operator, all of the hats at All Together Now. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, so you, uh, I was just so impressed by learning so much about the operation and everything that you do at All Together Now there in Chicago. Um, what brought you to the place where you ended up starting this business? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so there were a multitude of factors, both personal and professional, that converged to to make All Together Now a reality. Um, I grew up in a family where you know our all of our social occasions, all of our gatherings, every everything important was punctuated by a meal. Um, lots of conversation around what we were going to eat next, who's getting recipes from where. Um, so that being sort of the the water that I was swimming in as I grew up, um, I think I was sort of naturally drawn to the food industry as a as a place to hang out professionally. Um, I got to start the way that a lot of people do, just sort of waiting tables. I was a dishwasher in a kitchen. Um, wore all sorts of hats there. And then, um, little by little sort of, you know, after treating those as side jobs or a, a way to get somewhere else, I, you know, I dawned on me that this, this space was where people were having the most fun. Um, and it seemed like the kind of place I wanted to, to make a home out of more, more, mm-hmm. um, long-term. So worked for, um, a number of different specialty food operations in various corners. So I worked for uh, a, in a really great cheese shop in Boston called Formaggio Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for a bean to bar chocolate company when I lived in Brooklyn. And then after moving back to my, uh, home state of Illinois and settling in Chicago, uh, worked for Stephanie Isard. So she's the girl and the goat gal. Um, and, all these different experiences, working with small business owners, seeing people who had sort of, you know, inflated a dream of theirs into a, a real, a real floating thing, um, was really <laughs> inspiring for me. So, uh, I can, I can certainly tell. And, you know, how did some of these experiences, like, for example, working with a, a bean to bar chocolate company, um, or even, uh, you know, the, uh, the cheese shop in, Boston. How did those experiences uh, inform the design uh, and the efforts behind the kind of place uh, that you ended up starting in Altogether Now? I think the thing that came up for me over and over again, and the thing that was really compelling was the fact that the the food is delicious, right? But it's also so fun when it's got a story, when you can mm-hmm. connect either for real in real life in the case of, you know, like a local cheesemaker or just with, with a story that's shared online that sort of humanizes the process of, of what we eat and drink. Um, and yeah. those, those stories and that narrative, I think, um, are a really fun thing to pay attention to. Um, and it guides a lot of the way that we do our, our sourcing and, um, think about how to structure our, the, the products that we bring in the on the retail side of things for all together now and the way that our chef sources uh, the ingredients we use in our kitchen um, yeah so uh, so you've just rattled off a few things that all together now does um, it, it sounds like it's a retail space it's also a restaurant uh, what is the scope of all together now <laughs> um, 
depends on what day you ask me. Some days it's just right. Other <laughs> days it's too big. Um, I, I like to joke that we try and run in as many directions as possible. Um, but the, the short answer is that we are a restaurant, we're a wine shop, and we are a cheese counter. Uh, so we're all under one roof. Um, we also do catering, special events, um, and some, some mail order as well. How do you keep all that straight? I mean, because th- those are a lot of different functions with a, you know, they're complementary certainly, but they also take different competencies, different, um, you know, uh, skill sets and sourcing and uh, all kinds of things. So how do you, how do you keep all of that going? Um, you know, spinning all those plates. So for me, all of the concepts, even all of the, all of the efforts that we make, even though operationally they're very different, they're all I think centered around the idea of gathering people around food and drink and being part of those interactions. Right. So sometimes it's in our restaurant. Sometimes people have taken something, you know, from our cheese counter and wine shelves and brought it to somebody's dinner party. Um, other times somebody's, you know, sent a, you know, happy birthday gift box over to somebody else. Right. But it's, I think for me, it's all part of the same, the same effort. Um, operationally, um, it is, it is challenging. Um, we have a really wonderful team. Um, and we also, uh, kind of, I think the way that we operate was forged to a large degree during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we opened a year before the pandemic dropped on the world. And so we were a very young business and I think that helped us just sort of say, okay, we need to, whatever we need to do to keep connecting with people, even though we can't have them in our building, we're going to do that. You know, while I'm glad to not have to jump from one thing to another, I, mm-hmm. um, I think that period of time taught us that we're pretty resilient. And if something is interesting and worth doing, you know, we can, we can figure it out. Sure. I, I mean, there's no question that, you know, one, uh, you know, a bright spot, if you can call it that, in the pandemic, I think for many was, you know, innovation and, you know, the grand pivot of, you know, trying to figure out what you can do in this, you know, unprecedented and challenging circumstance. And it sounds like you all really rose to the occasion. Is that how you started doing, I know that you do like a subscription box or cl- cl- like cheese clubs. It was, was you know, trying to bring the joy to two people rather than than people coming into this multi-purpose space was was that some of the motivation behind creating that model yeah absolutely um the the wine club was something that we started fairly early on in the life of the business but we found that people really latched on to that um as we were going through the pandemic and trying to figure out ways that we could still maintain a little bit of our our humanity um and then the cheese club came shortly after, you know, we had, we had cheese laying around. Why not? Uh, <laughs> Why not? Made sense. Um, and then our, our gift boxes and e-commerce uh, was something that I think got a, got a real jolt from the necessity and the reality of, of the pandemic. Um, so, you know, still finding, you know, conceiving of all those things in a way that kind of you can capture we, we tried to think about it in terms of like, not just putting a bunch of stuff in a bag or a box and handing it over, but what are the, how can we make people feel like they're still, um, they're still interacting with us, even if not physically. Right. So like, what is, what's, what does hospitality look like if you have to put it in a box or package it into a subscription? So, so how do you do that? Um, for us, um, we try to be as playful as possible. Um, I think for 
and that is that's something I, I think we tried to I guess to take a step back try to sort of distill our approach that we take to you know to this day to interacting with our guests right so you know the the things that we deal in um, you know great small production wine uh, artisan cheese uh, kind of like small production grocery items, um, you know, thoughtfully sourced food, all of that can sort of feel a little bit big, right. Or like maybe untouchable if you're not well-versed in it, you know, you don't need, you know, you can feel intimidated by walking up to a cheese counter or feel like you don't know Mm -hmm. how to talk to somebody about the wine that you're looking for. Um, and for us, we try to remove a lot of that pretension and, you know, what people might imagine as barriers to interacting with that by just making it, um, as engaging and, uh, um, just, I, I think approaching the, every, every interaction in a non pretentious way, um, which is harder than it might sound. Uh, How Midwestern of you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. Um, so I think, you know, we, we joke around a lot, you know, and on every, and in every way, you know, amongst the team, um, I think, you know, levity and humor is an important part of the way that we, um, that we interact with our guests as well. And then, you know, via social media and all of the stuff we do. So when we were thinking about how to, how to sort of box up the spirit of all together now, that was important. Like we did a, a picnic kit during the pandemic and we included mm-hmm. some, you know, just some um, pen and paper games on there, word searches, things like oh, that. Things awesome. that sort of like, you know, function as distractions and also ways to, to connect with maybe like the one person you were hanging out with them. Right. <laughs> the one person, uh, yeah. it brings us, it brings us back, but you know, <laughs> you still, you still have, you know, the, the clubs are still, are still active, right? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Um, the wine and cheese clubs are super fun. Um, we do monthly um, monthly collections under a particular theme. So, for example, um, February's theme is better together. So, little little nod to Valentine's Day, that, that sure. you know heart shaped holiday coming up. Um, but we try to explore that, and so we take a, a bigger kind of like more nebulous concept and um, think about how we can look at cheese or wine through that. So in the case of wine, it might be a collaboration between two winemakers who, you know, haven't worked together yet, or it's a blending of varietals. So, you know, something that's greater than the sum of its parts. And when we think about it from the cheese side of things, it's like, you know, maybe it's a, you know, in the case of one of the, one of the cheeses we're doing, actually two of the cheeses, um, both are Midwestern cheeses made by really awesome goat cheese creameries. One uh, is in, Milwaukee or just north of Milwaukee, Blakesville Creamery, we're doing a, a, a wine, essentially like a wine rubbed goat cheese. And then Ooh. we're using, yeah, it's so good. Um, I mean, Veronica at Blakesville Creamery makes awesome cheeses anyway, but the, but the addition of some, some, you know, Pinot Noir remnants really, really kicked it up. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Um, so so this better together theme is going to be explored through various ways uh, in in this month's club, and so we do um, you know like a spring break themed one, Gone Wild, um, is the <laughs> official tagline. Um, so we have a lot of fun with it, but we also try and you know sneak some knowledge in there, right? So people, if you know, if they if they want to learn more about the things that they're you know they're eating and drinking, they can. If they just want to sort of read the silly zine that they get with the book or with the with their goods, they can do that too. You have a silly zine. That is fantastic. <laughs> we how, do, yeah. how far? How far in advance do you have to plan this to be able to, you know, 
identify your themes and then source the ingredients and then put together this zine that, you know, complements everything that you're, you know, you're sharing in the club? Um, a lot farther out than we sometimes do. Um, no. Um, so we, we have our year's worth of themes planned out and we're, um, we're essentially like repeating from year to year now because there's still, even if we have the same theme January to January, it's, you know, there's still a lot of ways to, you can walk within that. Um, so we know what's coming up. So I think, you know, we're myself and our wine club manager, we're constantly, you know, exposed to different producers, different products. And so and on some level we're thinking, Oh yeah, this would, you know, this would be good for the back to school theme in October, but it might be April. So we just sort of make a note of that and, and go on. Um, so there, there is some planning, but then there's also always cool stuff popping up, especially with you know, small producers, like the ones that we work with, like, Oh, like surprise. Um, there's this like limited edition cheese. that's going to be awesome. So, um, we try and plan out probably two to three months in advance and then get to work on sourcing and, and doing write-ups and features and things like that in the little zine. That's, that is awesome. I mean, I'm number one, I'm hungry. Number two, I'm definitely motivated to, uh, check out these, these clubs. Now, how far do you, how far do you, uh, ship? Uh, we can ship wine only within the state of Illinois, but cheese can go anywhere. So Capri, I can get you a box of cheese if you're still hungry when we finish this interview. (laughs) Don't tempt me because, you know, my nickname is the mouse for the amount of cheese that I consume. So I am all about it. Now we're talking cheese. We're talking wine. You mentioned one of, one of the, uh, cheesemongers that you work with, uh, cheesemakers. Um, tell me how you, uh, how you source the ingredients that, that you, that you sell and that you use in your menu and how much kind of the Midwestern terroir, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term, an overused term, um, informs the the kind of sourcing that you do. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for us in, you know, in some ways it's sort of like a no-brainer um, to be sourcing locally. Um, at this point, it's, it just, there are so many good ways to go about it. We buy directly from several farms, uh, McClug, Nichols, um, two awesome produce farms, one, one vegetable, one, one more fruits and berries oriented. Um, and then there's also just some great locally focused food distributors who can connect us with those smaller producers and those products on a more regular mm-hmm. basis. Um, now our, our chef is a native Midwesterner as well. So, you know, she grew up in a, in a cooking family with a strong appreciation of what was around her as well. So, um, and you know, both of us worked, lived and worked in Madison, although separately, um, and Madison, Wisconsin has a great local food scene with a lot of emphasis Absolutely. on, yeah, it's so fun to eat there. Um, so I think both of us carry that with us. Um, and then in general, when we're thinking about, you know, say a finished product on our, on our shelves or in our cheese case, so be that a bottle of wine, a box of crackers, um, or, you know, a wedge of cheese, um, I think, you know, obviously it's got to taste good. Right. Um, but I think we're, we, see the most success we enjoy it the most person or the we enjoy it the most personally and our guests you know come back with the most positive feedback when it's something that um producer you know producers working to um highlight quality rather than sort of churn out a you know a commodified product right so i think there's there's an embrace of 
of, I mean, like to use your, to use your word, that, that word terroir, um, but <laughs> the, the specific place where things come from, right? So we do a lot of sourcing from the Midwest on our cheeses. Um, but even if we're sourcing, you know, from further afield, be it you know, one of the coasts here in the U S or from abroad, um, when we find a producer that's, that's working to highlight the, the environment in which an animal was raised or the, right. you know, the, land in which a grape was grown um the product is just more interesting it's more fun to eat and it's more fun to talk about i do love food with a story no question about that and it sounds like you put a lot of thought and care into everything that goes into your operation and and when we had had a chance to to speak off air, you know, I was really impressed by, you know, the fact, you know, you sometimes don't think about, you know, people do think about, well, okay, locally sourced fruit and vegetables from this farm or that farm. But, you know, when you think about, you know, salami from Wisconsin, you know, or, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the um, some of the meats and fruits and the, uh, those sort of things, when you think about some of the meat products, I sometimes don't necessarily think about that. Um, I don't know why, but, you know, I, the fact that you can find those things, um, you know, by local producers and incorporate them into what you sell, I think is really impressive as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's, um, the, our, um, salami producers, underground meats there in, uh, in Madison, actually a connection that both Abby Yellerchef and I made again, separately, <laughs> uh, while we were in Madison. Um, those guys are awesome. They are, are working with all local heritage breed animals using really thoughtful, traditional curing processes. Fantastic. Um, so they, yeah, it's, yeah, they make, um, really tasty salamis. And that is, you know, we, we sell those on our cheese counter and they're an ingredient in our best selling sandwich, which is the French exit. Um, and what is that? Oh, it's, it's, uh, I like to think of it as like a little handheld picnic. Um, Ooh. so we have a great baguette made from a local bake bread that we buy from a local bakery, a couple blocks away from us called Aya. Um, we do some house made aioli and mustard on that. And then there's a few hefty slices of underground meats, soprasada, um, so an oh, Italian cool. style cured salami. And then we use Pleasant Ridge Reserve, which is a fantastic Wisconsin made Alpine style cheese from that's, that's Uplands, right? Yes. Yes. I know um, those guys. Yeah, yeah. Uplands cheese. They're fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you have the entire, you, you, not only do you have a picnic in a sandwich, you have like half the Midwest in that sandwich too, which is just, <laughs> Truly. Which, which is just incredible. Uh, now, uh, how seasonal is your menu? You know, you have things that, you know, you can come and get like at your cheese counter, but you also, you know, have a menu of, you know, things in your restaurant, which I'm sure you can take out, but, uh, I know that a lot of thought goes into the items that you put on the menu as well. I'm sure in collaboration with, or driven by, uh, your chef. So how does that process go as far as identifying, uh, the actual menu items that you serve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are some mainstays, um, thing, you know, we do a fried goat cheese curd, for example, from our, um, our friends at Blakesville Creamery, and that's on the menu year round. Um, but I think, you know, cheese curds are one of those things, especially in the Midwest, they know no season. <laughs> you, you can eat them that when it's true. hot, you can eat them when it's cold. Um, but I think especially, you know, things, things, our, our options open up in the spring and summer, which is always so fun. Um, I feel a little bit silly, but I'm now one of those people who's like, oh, it's ramp season. Hey, there's a ramp season is amazing. Ramp season is amazing. I live close. I'm in Ohio, but West Virginia is down the road and they know and love their ramp. So 
I'm all about ramp season. I think it's, I mean, ramps are tasty, right? But I think more than, more than like the actual vegetable itself, it just is, it's, it heralds the fact that, you know, it might stop being winter sometime soon. Um, so when, when that's for fo- folks that are not familiar with ramps, they are a like, kind of like a garlic onion hybrid that you forge. It's, you necessarily, you don't necessarily go out and like get ramps at the grocery store. Like a lot of, the, there's a massive forging tradition with ramps, at least in my region. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of that going on here too. And some of our um, more focused specialty distributors will actually, they, they will purchase from foragers actually. And then um, get them to us. Um, so when, when it warms up, things start widening up. So we get a greater array of produce. I mean, in general, the, I think right now we're focused on cozy foods, things that you know, make sense with the way that people are spending their time, um, you know, during the winter time, just sort of hunkering down. Um, and then winter, uh, once winter clears out, spring and summer come in, um, dishes get just a little bit lighter, a little bit more produce driven. Um, and that is made easier by the fact that we, you know, all of the, you know, the local rooftop farms that we work with, um, they spring into action with all of their tasty stuff, all the things from the, the fruits and vegetable farms a little further afield, um, into, you know, more rural parts of Illinois and you know, into Wisconsin, they, uh, and Michigan as well. Um, what they have available just widens as well. Absolutely. Sure. So it sounds like it's a pretty seasonally driven menu. Give us some examples of some things we might be able to find um, this time of year. Um, and since, you know, this will live, you know, evergreen on uh, on the podcast, uh, what could we expect kind of throughout the season if we were to come um, to, to visit you in Chicago? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Right now, um, I think the the big plates on our dinner menu are focused on, you know, we've got some legumes, like a, we've got a black lentil cassoulet on the menu, which is awesome. So a lot of like sort of layering of flavors, a charred onion broth, a little bit of rutabaga on there. Um, so leaning into the, you know, the, the Midwestern larder when the, when the temperatures are cold. Um, we've got a red wine braised lamb shank um, with an Italian style salsa verde, um, local carrots on that one. But you know, as we flip into into spring and summer, um, you know, I'm gonna have to rack my brain to remember like what kind of things <laughs> we've we've served. Um, so, like a seasonal sandwich we've done uh, for a few summers running um, has been an osserati, and so it's a French sheep's milk cheese um, with fresh peaches, um, and that is just a really fun way to you know, and eating your peaches in a kind of a savory context uh, as a sandwich, um, is super fun. Um, we also do, um, like, uh, so the goat cheese producer that we work with Blakesville Creamery, I keep talking about them cause they're awesome. And she's also a pal. Um, I gotta get her, I gotta get her on the show. I am convinced we gotta, we gotta talk. Yes. Um, we do a sunny Ridge, which is a, a beer washed goat cheese, um, with a carrot slaw. So again, like a little bit lighter fare, but still nodding to the fact that we've got some really good cheese, uh, at our disposal there. You know, I'm looking at the menu that is currently online. I don't know how accurate it is right now, but I, I see a, um, and who knows if I'm going to pronounce this correct, a Calcango hand pie. 
You got you got uh, pretty close, um, Calcano. Uh, yeah, so at least one of our sandwiches is always a vegetarian riff um, on you know plays with an artisan cheese in some way. So that Calcano hand pie is um, it is indeed on the menu. So if you want to you know start driving after we get off offline, you can. It's you can a straight. Come get it's it a today. straight. On, it's a straight shot on I eighty from where I'm at. So <laughs> Perfect. I might <laughs> got a full tank of gas. Yeah, um, yeah. So that is um, that is our our, our winter. Fancy cheese and It looks fantastic. Yeah. Raw sheep's milk cheese, spinach, artichoke, pimento, and brioche. I mean, that just, it sounds so hearty. I mean, I can tell that you, you all don't shy away from rich flavors, you know, whether it is the subrasada, whether it is the, 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 you know, cheeses, it just, it's, it seems if you all are very much not afraid to, you know, go big with your flavors. Yeah. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to eat, have fun. I totally agree. I totally agree. So, uh, you know, what's in the future for this already pretty diverse business and space there in the, is it the Ukrainian village of Chicago? Yes, um, we are in the Ukrainian village. Um, that's the, the million dollar question. What's next? Um, I think for me, it's not a question of whether there's something next, but it's, it's more of a what and a when. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as we've talked about, we we kind of smoosh a lot of things, a lot of different activities into into one business. Um, but you make and- it work. I mean, the thing is, you make it, you, it from, from my perspective, and, and, you know, I definitely would love, you know, when I'm in Chicago next, check you guys out. Because from my perspective, you all have managed to thread this very, you know, complicated needle under one umbrella and make it work because it does have that shared spirit. So keep at it. Thank what you so much. That? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we toss around ideas all the time, right? So it's, you know, like do our chef is an amazing, she's amazing in the kitchen, has so many good ideas, you know, so maybe it's, maybe it's more of a traditional restaurant. That's, you know, that's something that is constantly up for discussion. Maybe it's something that we, you know, we all sort of various ways amongst the team have some ties to, to Michigan as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, we love, you know, and tons of Chicagoans go to Southwest Michigan on summer weekends. So maybe, you know, an outpost there is sort of a pipe dream, but one that is near and dear to my heart, just as my own, my own personal connections to the state. Um, you know, another location in Chicago would be amazing, whether it's, you know, more of a wine shop and a cheese shop, or maybe you know, our chef loves the idea of doing a butcher counter, um, you know, we, it'll, it, whatever you see from us next will be related, but I can't tell you what it's going to be. You know, you got time, you have the passion, you guys have the talent and the team. It sounds like to be able to, to pull off whatever, uh, you know, creative muse, you know, drives you next, um, for folks that want to find you, uh, maybe want to join one of your clubs. If they're not there in the Chicago area, get some cheese shipped, out, um, or want to check you out, how can they, how can they find you and learn more and maybe sign up? Oh, wonderful. Great question. Uh, so you can find us online. We are at altogethernow.fun, that is dot F-U-N at the end. Um, you can find us on Instagram, um, and you could just give us a ring too. We love to chat. Well, 
you, you know, like I said, don't tempt me. I might be picking up the phone <laughs> and giving you all a call and getting my cheese and getting on the road and, and trying some of the, your fantastic food there. Um, this has just been wonderful. And, and, um, you know, not only am I hungry, but I'm also inspired by how you've connected all of these different Midwestern flavors under one roof. Uh, Aaron, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us here on Eat Your Heartland Out. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Capri. You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, Capri Cafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. You can learn more about the show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash Eat Your Heartland Out. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.